of how that content equips us from you, that you would fill us with the word of your spirit, by your spirit, to be people of your spirit. Lord, some of us today are weary. Some of us are feeling guilty. Some of us are feeling worried. Some among us may be dealing with physical maladies, whether it's a passing illness or a chronic condition. There may even be those who are a part of today's message or listening to this word now who are dealing with COVID-19. Lord, we pray for the healing touch of your holy hand upon every ear, upon every heart, upon every life touched by your word and this message today, whatever today happens to be, because this message will be recorded by your grace, Lord. We believe that you will continue to work through your word and through this time to bring healing and wholeness, restoration and hope, forgiveness and grace, correction and love, guidance and strength to all we who ask this of you in the mighty name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a Bible there with you, and I hope that you do, you can turn to Joshua chapter 22. We're continuing in our series on the Joshua generation, a series that we began last year here at PCF and that we are coming to the final chapters of this week, next week, and the week following. We have three more messages in this series, including today, in which we will look at the last three chapters of the book of Joshua. Now, if you haven't been tracking with us uh, in this series, that's okay. Today's message will still be meaningful to you. By the way, I'll mention to you that if you like, you can always go back on our YouTube channel or on our website and look at prior messages. The, the teaching slides are available on our website, mypcf.org. You can go to the events page, and at the time of this series, those uh, teaching slides are available. If somebody's listening to this message at some future point, and they're not on that page on the website anymore, you can always contact the church, and we're happy to provide these resources. The teaching is there to help you. Uh, you can also listen to audio or video recordings of prior messages in this series. But each message is intended also to be able to stand alone so that anyone who's participating in the time of teaching in any given message can expect that there's a relevant message and meaning for you in your life today. But it does help to understand the full arc of the story of the Joshua generation, especially because the Lord has spoken to us in these days, and he said to PCF, and I think he's saying to his body at large that we are a Joshua generation in these days. That means that we are people who have a heritage of faith behind us. There are people who have gone before us. You know the old adage that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the faith hall of fame, as it's often called. And you can find that hall of fame not only in the book of Hebrews, but in every book of the Bible. And you'll recognize that you and I owe a great debt of gratitude to those who have come before us and shown us how to live in hard times. Because you know what? As challenging as the present circumstances are, or whatever circumstances you may find yourself in today you are not living through something that has never been lived through before. It feels maybe a little bit hard to believe that, and in a way, you are. Both things are true. What you're experiencing is not uncommon to humanity, whatever it is, because as the preacher of Ecclesiastes, most likely King Solomon, said, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that is 
has been before and probably will be again. And yet, the Bible also makes us aware that there is a progression of God's plan throughout history. And friend, there's a progression of God's plan throughout your story. So in some ways, you are living through something unique because you are unique. And no one knows that better than God, your maker, who made you by hand, as it were, who formed you in your mother's womb. So how good it is to know that this word can show us how to live through all kinds of circumstances because everything that humanity faces is touched upon in this book in some way or another, this library of books that we call the Bible. But how wonderful also to know that whatever you're experiencing that is utterly unique, no matter how isolated or alone you may feel, no matter how you may consider yourself, even as the Apostle Paul once said, the worst of sinners or the hardest to reach, the most stiff-necked, hard-hearted person or the most desperate and, and confused person, the most needy and alone person, the Lord knows you. He knows where you are. He knows your story, and he will lead you to how your story fits into his story. Today, we're talking about the story of a Joshua generation, and we're coming to the final chapters, and particularly to chapter 22. Joshua 22, and an altar named Witness. In ancient Near Eastern culture, altars like this, stone altars, were typical of the religious practices of the time. Not only uh, the people of Israel, but the Canaanite peoples as well had their idols and altars to lesser gods, if you will, false gods that were no gods compared to the real God. Because, listen, O people of the Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is only one God of heaven and earth. There is only one maker. But throughout time immemorial, people have turned away from that one real God and given themselves over to many other gods. Please put a lowercase g in your mind on that word gods because what I'm talking about is idols. What I'm talking about is anything that becomes a fixation and focus of our lives something that we pour our life into or lay our life before or pattern our life after that is not God. Even good things can be false gods if they are lifted up above the name of the Lord because, in fact, they are not above the name of the Lord. And so what, what kind of worship is really going on there is a lie. And ultimately, what God says is all lies will be brought down, but the truth, the truth stands above. So the altar of the Lord of ancient Israel was also a recognition, a testimony, a confession of that fact, a witness. That altar says there's only one God and we worship him. There's only one God and he is the God of Israel. But God chose Israel, a man named Israel who had sons, 12 sons, that became tribes, 12 tribes, that became a nation also called Israel. And God chose that nation a small, humble family of people who were full of problems and made plenty of mistakes, but also who kept hearing from the Lord and responding to the Lord. And the promise of the Lord to them was, I will make a people for myself out of you, and I will use that people to be what? To be a witness, a witness to the world. And what is it that Israel was to witness to the world? That there is a God in Israel. In fact, that's not only how they patterned their worship, 
That's how they fought their battles, as the song says. Remember when David, the shepherd boy, came into the valley of Elah, and there towering over him was one of those giants of the land. You know the famous story of David and Goliath. David young, David small, David not even wearing the armor of the king that was offered to him because it didn't fit. It was too big and it was outsized. But more importantly, because David said, this great huge enemy that I'm coming to face today, this Goliath, who's so strong and has such big weapons, doesn't intimidate me. I come with these five smooth stones. I come with my slingshot. But more importantly than that, I come with the Lord. I come in the name of the Lord, not only to defeat you, but to bear witness to all the earth that all the earth would know that there is a God in Israel who is God of all the earth and everyone owes allegiance to him. He will smite his enemies, but he will bless his followers. What a witness to the name, to the fame, to the faith of the Lord. So every altar is, in fact, a kind of witness. But altars are made also to receive offerings. Certainly in the ancient world, that was the functional purpose of those stone altars. In fact, they were made of stone not only to show the solidness, the strength, the, the cornerstone foundational quality of worship of a god, but also because stone was a place in which the sacrifice could be made. The blood of the animals, of oxen and bulls, of, of lambs and goats, would be shed on that altar as an offering to the Lord. So not only is there the, the spiritual witness, but there's also a kind of legal transactional quality to that witness. This is the place where God and people will meet and God will receive what people have to offer. And what they offer is costly. It comes in the flow of lifeblood because it shows that people are saying, you are our God and our lives belong to you and you are the one and only one that can cleanse and redeem us. Now, the place where that altar was in ancient Israel was what we call today the temple, or we would think of as a church or a synagogue. But prior to the establishment of a permanent temple, which did not come until hundreds of years after the period that we are looking at now in the book of Joshua, you'll remember that there was a, a movable temple there was a tent of meeting, a tabernacle, that was established according to the instructions of the Lord in his word to Moses in the prior generation, the Moses generation. And when the Joshua generation entered over the Jordan River, you see this red line that bifurcates the, the, the Holy Land. It, it forms, as I've said before, a kind of spine through Israel. Here on the, on the Cisjordan side, or the West Bank, of uh, Israel, the side that the majority of the tribal allotments that we've been looking at in the book of Joshua, where each one of those 12 sons receives some kind of land of inheritance, typically large states, if you will, or in the case of the Levites, the Lord said, I am your inheritance, but you'll have cities scattered throughout these regions. Most of that is in this Cisjordan. Cisjordan just means the same side, our side our side of the Jordan. So it's a, it's a terminology that reflects the, the perspective of the people of the Lord that this is the primary promised land. And 
they had to cross over the Jordan to enter into it. And when they did, they brought the tabernacle with them. They brought the Ark of the Covenant. They brought all the implements and elements that were utilized in the tabernacular worship of the Lord. And as we've talked about, they established in Shiloh, here at the heart of the nation, in a central region in those ancient days, that the tabernacle would stay there, at least for a time, and that's where the altar of the Lord was. Later, there would be the establishment of a permanent temple in Jerusalem, down here in Judah, you see just a bit south, and of course that is the city of David and David's son that we've just mentioned a, a few moments ago, Solomon, would, in the name of the Lord, build a temple there, and so the altar of the Lord would be there. The point is that there was uh, always intended to be a, a central location, a single altar. That's going to be very important to understand what's transpiring in the message today. And by the way, I should mention to you, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of throw a lot at you today, but I hope you will enjoy receiving it. I want to, as much as possible, let the Word preach itself to you. Let the Lord, by His Spirit, preach to you and I through the Word. And as we hear not only the story of Joshua in chapter 22, but also as we see connections to passages of Scripture that come to us uh, from times following, I trust that you will see a connection to your own life today. But I want to ask a favor of you. Will you take a moment and do this? If there's somebody there with you, I'm going to ask you to say this to them out loud. And I'm going to urge you once again to actually use real words and say it out loud. Don't be shy or embarrassed to do that. If you're uh, alone, you can just say it out into the air. The Lord is a witness there of what you say. But I'm going to ask you to affirm that you're going to make an effort with what you hear in this message to find the place where it applies to you. Often the, 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 the project of the preacher, if you will, is to, by God's grace, help people to connect the, the witness of the word into our own lives. And that's part of the, the bridge building process that, that I'm called to and that I rely upon the Lord for in preaching. But sometimes I think the preacher also needs to say to all of us, including him or herself, remember that it is your right worship to find how this word speaks to you. And that doesn't mean that you and I each have our own individual interpretation. The scriptures itself said through the mouth of Peter, the apostle, that no scripture is just a point of personal interpretation isolated from everyone else. In other words, none of us should think, well, I get to decide what this means, and whatever I say it means, that's what it means. But rather, we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and also to the witness of those who have come before us and to the wisdom of the Lord at work through the church. But we have a place individually of responsibility to say, I need to seek the Lord for how I'm supposed to apply this today. So I'm going to ask you to say this. I'm going to ask you to make a vow and don't say it if you, can't, if you won't do it, right? So I'll tell you what it is that I'm going to ask you to say before you say it so you can evaluate. But I want you to say, this week and in the days ahead, I will pray and ask God to show me how to apply these lessons. I will, this week and in the days ahead, pray and ask God to show me how to apply these lessons. Will you say that? I will, this week and in the days ahead, pray and ask God to show me how to apply these lessons in my life. If you do that, he will show you. 
And once he shows you, there will be a place of practice for you, some actual steps that you can do. None of us earns our salvation, but we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we are called to not only hear the word of God, but to obey it, to engage our lives in it. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about how this might apply to you because I'm going to let you and the Lord work together on that. But I also want to say that's one of the benefits or that's an area where we can see one of the benefits of being connected to the body and how essential it is that we are not just believers operating on our own, especially in these days. You know, I realize that we don't have the kind of physical gatherings in this building right now that we have. And it's been six months of that. And I don't mean to diminish for a moment how difficult that is because it's been hard for all of us. And I want to remind you, we will meet in this building again. We will. And I don't think it will be too far off. We're going to do it with wisdom. We're already taking steps and making plans to reinstitute some um, measured forms of meetings. And in fact, we even have that uh, to some degree in place. Um, and so soon, I think we will be able to have at least a limited number here. And eventually, we will be able to, I expect, have uh, a normative practice of gathering. But it's very important that you realize, as a member of PCFLA, that even if you're not crossing over the border of this building, you are still a part of this body. We owe ourselves to you in submission to the Lord. That means we recognize, we the leaders here of the church, elders and this body, recognize that we belong to each other because of the Lord. And we want to call you to account. You owe yourself to us also as unto the Lord because God has put us into a body together. Now, friend, if you're a guest today and you're not a member of this church, but you're just participating in the teaching, may the Lord bless you. And uh, there's no sense here that this is the only local congregation or the only place that the word of God gets preached. We are blessed to know that there are many brothers and sisters in the body of Christ at large, not only here in L.A., and God bless the churches of L.A., but all over the United States, all over the Philippines, all over the world. Hallelujah. And we, we recognize that there is a place that God has called each one of his people to be connected in local fellowship. But I do want to say that if you don't have a place like that, and you are local here in L.A., this is recognized. This is not about me stumping for more members of an organization. This is about me saying to you, in the spirit of the Lord, no member of the body should be dismembered because no dismembered member can live. If you cut off your finger or your toe, your body can survive. It does damage, and the body loses something for it, but the finger or toe is dead. So in order, in fact, if something like that happens, generally the first order of recourse is to try and get to a physician who can reattach that, that dismembered part, if at all possible, so that the flow of blood and life can return. So I want to say, if you're dismembered from the body of Christ in these days, or if maybe you're watching this message and it's been a long time and you've been walking away from the Lord, or you've never been a part of the body of Christ, let me tell you, there is no life outside of Christ. There is no way to live outside the body. If you do know the Lord and you are living for him, then you need to live in his body and with his people. It's not just a recommendation. It's a requirement of life. So be connected somewhere to the genuine body of Christ where the word is preached 
and the grace of God is not just your sole individual preoccupation, but is a part of the community because we build each other up as witnesses to one another. It's part of what we are called to be as the people of God. The worship that we engage in together becomes a witness. It's at the heart of who we are. And it can't just be um, an individual activity. There is a corporate communal aspect to our faith. In ancient Israel, that corporate communal aspect involved the tabernacle worship that occurred in Shiloh. And all of the tribes were gathered around it. Now, in Joshua chapter 22, we're arriving at a place that I spoke to you about many times before in the preceding weeks. And that is that we're coming back to the story of these Transjordanian tribes. So we talked about how on the western bank, we refer to them as Cisjordan, our side of the Jordan. Transjordan means across the Jordan River, on the other side of the Jordan River. Do you remember that when Moses was preparing the people to come into the promised land, even then they were on this eastern side of the Jordan or the, the Transjordanian plains. Here there is a region called Gad. It's named for the, uh, the tribe, the son of Israel named Gad and the tribe that bears his name. Reuben, the firstborn that we talked about last week, who had a history of some disobedience. He, he uh, actually uh, was um, so immoral as to engage in a uh, sexual relationship with his, um, his stepmother, essentially. And that was something that was such a violation, not only of his father's trust, but also of God's will, that it impacted Reuben. So that even though Reuben was uh, firstborn, you can see that he doesn't have anywhere near his tribe of course, Reuben himself, the individual by the time of Joshua, has long died. But the descendants of Reuben have a much smaller portion than, for instance, the younger son Judah that has this enormous portion. Or the younger son Benjamin that, though it has a smaller portion, is also the focal point of what will become uh, the monarchy and the kingdom here in the area of Jerusalem and becomes closely aligned with Judah as well. You'll remember that the sons of Joseph, twins, or excuse me, not twins, but two sons that become half-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, also received large portions. Again, because Benjamin and Joseph were sons um, whose faithfulness the Lord rewards. Judah, whose name means praise, becomes a symbol of worship for us and also becomes the source of the Messiah. Jesus himself is a descendant of the tribe of Judah, as is uh, King David. And so um, there's all these tribal allotments being made, and some of them are on this side. That's because in the days of Moses, when they were preparing to come into the country, Reuben and uh, Gad and uh, Manasseh said, we're happy with this land. Rather than taking a portion in the, in the uh, Cisjordan area, can we just have a tribal apportionment here? And Moses consulted with the Lord and said, you can have that if that's what you want, but... You can't do it and not fight with your brothers and sisters to lay hold of the promised land because there's all these, these uh, enemies, these Canaanite, uh, idolatrous communities, city-states in this region that are going to fight not only against the people of God, but they are effectively fighting against God. And what God has said is, my people have been promised this land and they're going to take it, but there's going to be confrontation. 
And you've got to be a part of that. You can't abandon your brothers and sisters. You see, you can't be dismembered. You can, you can have this, this portion on the other side, but you have to cross over all the same. We're all going over together. We are all going to face the challenge together in the Lord. We're all going to worship together. So the altar and the tabernacle, the temple ultimately will be here, not over here, you see. But once you have fought those battles and served that service, then if you wish, you can go back. Now Manasseh had portions on both sides. So you have basically a a partial uh, component of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben on this side. Now, in Joshua 22, we're going to see what happens, which is basically by this point, all those battles have been fought. Not all of the land, I, I, I took my map away and I'm going back to it. Not all of the land has been totally occupied, but all of the tribes have received their portions and all of the, the key battles in order to secure that, uh, the, those tribal um, boundaries or outlines have effectively been fought. And so when we come to Joshua 22, we see that it's now time for those Transjordanian tribes, the tribes that are going across back over the Jordan, to go home. So basically, this chapter breaks down into five key segments. In the first, the first ten verses, we see, once again, all the people of Israel gather together at Shiloh in that central place of worship and recognition of their community in the Lord. And the Transjordanian tribes say, we'd like to go back home now. And Joshua, the leader of the nation, blesses them and says, you've done everything that Moses asked you to do. You've done everything that the Lord called you to do. You can now go home. But as they are going home or or back to the place that they had already passed through, they're going to have to go over the Jordan. And they have to cross it. Like any river, you can't cross it just anywhere. There are fording places, places where the river geographically naturally allows for an easier passage. And so they are crossing over in a central area. But before they do that, in the first 10 chapters, in fact, uh, uh, first 10 verses of chapter 22, and in fact, in verse 10, you'll see they build a stone altar on the Cisjordanian bank, on the side that they're leaving. They build an altar, but it's right there at the border. Or they build an, uh, an altar at the border, and this is not a part of the ordained tabernacle worship. So it raises a very big concern among the the tribes on the Cisjordanian side or the Israelite side, which is, why are they making another altar? And the expectation is, they're going to try and create their own worship. They're going to have their own way of uh, communicating with the Lord. They're going to appeal and say, we are really God's people. I know I keep going back to the map, but I need to make this point, that ultimately, in times to come, that actually will happen. Hundreds of years later, after the reign of David and Solomon, there's going to be a split in the kingdom of Israel, a northern region and a southern region. Now it's not uh, being done on the basis of the Jordan boundary, but on the north-south boundaries, if you will. And in the north, the nation of Israel, as opposed to the nation of Judah, will say, we're not going to go down to Jerusalem anymore. That's the capital of Judah. We're not going to go to the temple anymore because that's where the Judahites worship. We're going to make our own capital, right? And uh, we're going to make it in Samaria. And we're going to make a new temple in Samaria. And it becomes a place that even though it was ostensibly dedicated to the God of Israel, it becomes 
filthy with idolatry. It gets given over to the old Canaanite gods and the worship practices that, that, did, that are not just offensive to God on, on quote-unquote religious terms. It becomes a false god and a false fixation and focus that completely decimates the people. In fact, in the days of Jesus, when you read about the Samaritans, those are sort of the, the descendants of that region. And one of the reasons why the Jewish peoples of the South are so at odds with the Samaritans of the North and vice versa is because of this split over God and how to properly worship him. But remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 when she said, well, you know, our ancestors say we should have the temple up here and your ancestors say it should be down there. And what Jesus said is, my ancestors are actually right. The Judahites are right. The Lord has created one temple, but the time is coming and now is when God will seek those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So the reason that there's a concern way back now in the times of Joshua is, are these people that are going over a boundary or a border, are they also going over a border of right worship? Are they leaving the truth of God? And so, because that will have an impact on the entire nation, God had said, if any of your people start to worship in a wrong way, all of your people are going to be affected by it. Remember, that's the message. If any of you turn away, all of you face consequences. Then these, these, these Cisjordanian tribes say, we'll go to war. We will fight these Transjordanians. But before they're going to go to war, before they will commit to bloodshed within their own nation, an internecine strife between tribes, there is wisdom from the Lord in which there's a recognition, we need to first talk. Let me pause for a moment and say, it is essential that you and I communicate. And if there are divisions, or when there is strife, and certainly we see that in our land today, and it even goes on within churches, we need to remember that communication is of the Lord. Before we go to fight, we should come and talk. Before we build boundaries and barriers, we should come together. So the Cisjordanians are getting ready to go to war, but they select leaders from all of the 10 tribes on their side, and along with uh, their, their uh, priestly leader, they send a delegation to go and talk with the Jordanians as these tribes are preparing to cross over. And in verses 32 to 33, their discussion has concluded, and what they'll learn from those tribes is they're saying, we are not building this altar in order to worship another god or even in order to worship our god in another place. We are building it as a witness. This is a border marker that reminds our descendants and especially yours, because their concern is, you might not take us back. Our children might come to worship at the tabernacle or the temple, and you might say, hey, you're foreigners, you don't belong. But this altar will be a witness that we're brothers and sisters and that we do belong and that we are as dedicated to the Lord as you are, and therefore we are dedicated to you. In fact, the irony is the altar was about to spark a war, but the altar was a witness of the unity and harmony of the Spirit. So, having heard this, the Cisjordanian delegation returns home and war is avoided. And at the end of the chapter, we are told that the name given to that altar is permanently memorialized as witness. A witness that we belong together. 
to the Lord. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read all of the passages with you because I want to get into some of the other connecting passages that I talked about. But I do want to call out a few points before we move from the close look at this material to some of the applicational material that we'll find in other parts of the Bible as we come into the home stretch of this message. So if you will look with me, um, orienting yourself uh, to uh, the, the outline that we've just given, you'll find that in verse 10, we see the, the departing tribes, the tribes that are crossing over to the Jordan to go into the Transjordan re region, setting up this altar. And it says it's an imposing altar. It's big. It's clearly intended to be permanent. And um, when the Israelites hear about this, then they gather together again at Shiloh and make their preparations for war, as I mentioned. But they send the delegation. And uh, look here in verses 13 and 14, you can see they send Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest. So Phinehas is a, a chief priest of the nation at this time. And they also send elders, men from each one of the ten Cisjordanian tribes. So this delegation goes and they confront the people of Transjordan and they say, how could you do this? How could you break faith, verse 16, with the God of Israel like this? You know we're not supposed to build other altars. And, and you're turning away from the Lord? And you're going to go into rebellion? And now they're going to use this, this dialogue to remind the people of the Transjordan. They're going to be a witness themselves, these, this uh, Cisjordanian delegation. They're going to say, do you remember the sin of Peor? Wasn't that enough? Even up till now, they say, we haven't been totally cleansed from that sin. The sin of Peor was um, described in Numbers chapter 25, and it brought a plague on the land. Boy, I think it's worth pausing for a moment and saying in a day of pandemic, it's worth remembering that as unpopular as this may sound, the reality is when disease runs rampant through a land, it is always a reflection of sin. Now, some people might say, oh, are you trying to say that, you know, if we behave well, we get blessings from God, and if we behave badly, we get curses from God? The scripture says that kind of statement over and over again, but it needs to be understood properly. The reality is, it's like the dismembered body part I talked about. If the member of a body is in right relationship with the rest of the body, the life of that body flows, and the member is in good health. But if a bone gets broken, if a, mem if a, if a limb gets severed, if cells begin to propagate in a cancerous way, then it brings about death. So the reality of God's word is, if we disconnect ourselves from God, which is what we did all the way back in the beginning of the garden, death is the result. But God's intent has always been to bring life. But as God brings his life to bear among his people, the power of that life is such that if people still resist, then God says he will use things, even if it's not his desire that people would be sick. I'm not saying that God necessarily sends disease, per se, but rather God uses the results of our actions to show us what those results are and to goad us back to him, to lead us to him. So when Israel, under the leadership of Moses, was in a place called Shittim in the wilderness, 
Then the Israelite men began to engage in sexual relationships with the Moabite women, who are like these Canaanite tribes as well. It's pagan people who don't follow the Lord and have different religious practices. In fact, they worship to a god called Baal of Peor. And in doing this, there's a plague that begins to run rampant in the, among the people. And in fact, there is, even after the Lord, the Lord speaks to the people of Israel and says, you need to stop this idolatrous intermixing with false teaching and false worship, there is still a, a man um, of Israel who brazenly goes and grabs this, uh, this uh, Midianite woman named Cosby and brings her into his tent. This Zimri is his name. And uh, Phineas takes a spear and kills the both of them. It's a brutal moment in the scriptures, and it may be offensive to our modern sensibilities, but without taking all the time that I would like to to uh, elaborate that point, I'll remind you of a lesson that we've talked about in previous times through the book of Joshua, which is to say this is a, a, a description of a particular kind of uh, righteous behavior that God called his people Israel to in the particular context of that time, but it becomes symbolic for us of the reality of the effect of sin. Now, what Jesus has taught us is that we are to love our enemies, and we are, uh, what Paul, by the spirit of Jesus, has taught us is that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. So none of us is called to go out there with spears and just start spearing people that we think are living in a wrong way. But what we should recognize is you cannot intermingle with people who are not living the life of the Lord and who are living in opposition to him without being affected by it. And if you think that you can live in the world and live in the kingdom, what this story helps you to see is you can't. There's death in the ways of the world. There's only life in the kingdom. And anyone who tolerates that kind of mentality within themselves is going to invite death within themselves. I trust that you'll understand, and I pray that you'll pray for the application that's relevant for you. But this is a passage that gets repeated um, elsewhere. We see about it in Deuteronomy 4. We hear about it in Psalm 106. So it's a, a signal moment in the life of Israel. It's letting them know, do not take casually the idea of worshiping other gods because there's only one God. And so now they're saying to these Transjordanian tribes, don't you remember how the entire nation suffered for that? So if you're going to do that kind of thing now, then tomorrow God's going to send plague among us. And if, the, if that's the case, then, then we've got we've to be like Phineas now and put the spear through you if that's what you're doing. It isn't what they're doing, but this delegation wants to be sure. They say, look, if you don't like the land that you're going to and you think that you're going to have to come back to this altar all the time to purify it, well, then don't go. Stay here. Be our brothers. This is an appeal to unity. They're, they're saying, we're not sending you away. Stay here then. But don't rebel against the Lord. If you are going to go to the other side, don't go to the other side against God and build some other altar. Or don't you remember, and now they're going to, in verse 20, reflect on another witness from the past. Don't you remember Achan, the son of Zerah? He was unfaithful. He hid something that was supposed to belong to God. He hid it in his tent. And not only did he end up suffering for that, he was put to death, but the whole nation suffered a defeat in battle. So again, what they're saying is, if you disobey God, it's going to affect all of us. Now, I need to skip over some, but I just want to remind you that last year, 
we looked at the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. And if you download today's slides from the website, you'll be able to see a refresher about that passage and some of the lessons that we drew from it. But I'm going to go right to the point of it, which is basically Achan was a person who figured as long as I can hide it from the people, I can hide it from God. And it was out of greed that he took some of the, the, the loot from a battle and he hid it for himself that was supposed to be put on the altar. It was supposed to go to God. Not because God is greedy, but because God knew that if Achan or anyone hid that in their heart, what they would be hiding was disobedience from God. And what they'd be motivated by is greed. The scriptures say, not for naught, that the love of money is the root of much evil. And much of that gets hidden in hearts. But Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, there's nothing that's hidden that won't be seen, brought out into the open. And so, in the same way, the delegation is saying to the Cisjordanian tribes, don't think that you can get away from, with this if you're going to disobey against God, and we won't let you. Now, the Transjordanian tribes are going to reply, and they reply with a devotion of worship to the God of Israel. Look at verse 22, the mighty one, God the Lord. They repeat it, which is a Semitic way of saying this is important, and this is underlined, and this... This bears repeating, the mighty one, God, the Lord. It is a kind of variant uh, on Deuteronomy 6.5 and the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's, the, it's a fundamental testimony or witness of what they believe. And they're saying, we're not hiding anything. He knows. He knows what's in our heart. And now we want you to know what God already knows. We want you to see what is in our heart, which is we are not doing this in rebellion against you or the Lord. And if we are, then God strike us dead, right? Then let his wrath fall on us. But we've actually built this altar for a different reason. If we built this altar to offer up alternative worship that goes against the things of God, in other words, if we're saying we'll decide how God wants to be worshiped, then may the Lord call us to account. There's a point of present application here. The world cannot tell you what God wants. The world does not know who God is. They may put the name of God on their mouth. People may even put the name of Jesus on their lips. But that doesn't mean that the worldly spirit can ever give witness to the truth of God. If you and I are to have the wisdom of who God is and what he wants, we have to ask him. And then we, like Israel, are meant to be a witness to the world and to show the world the truth of God, his justice and his mercy, his love, but also the reality of his wrath because the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and the Lord will call to account. And so the, the Cisjordanian tribes are saying, we know that and may God do it. So we're not trying to disobey. But what we do think is maybe someday our descendants are going to try and come back over this border and you might have descendants who don't recognize them. And so we want them to know we are part of the family. We are part of the body. And that's why we're building this altar, not for sacrifices. It's a symbol, not a sacramental table. It is a witness between us and you, our descendants and yours, that we all belong to God and that we will be coming back over this river again and again, three times a year at least for the high holy days. And throughout the year, people of the, of the, of the Transjordanian tribes are going to come back over in order to go to the tabernacle or go to the temple. 
And so, far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him by building some false altar. This is a witness altar. So when the delegation, including Phineas and the leaders of the Cisjordanian tribes heard this, they were pleased. They worshiped the Lord together. They said, today we know the Lord is with us because you're not being unfaithful. You're not being unfaithful to God or to our contract. And so God has um, shown us there's no need for war. You have saved us from a time of warfare. And then they go back to their land. And they give the report to the entire nation. And the entire nation is pleased. And the Rubens, Reubenites and Gadites give the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. From the beginning, as I've said, God has said about his people, you are my witnesses. This is one of the early moments where we see that the people of the Lord recognize that God has called them to be a witness. In later years, the prophet Isaiah will repeat on behalf of the Lord by his spirit that God says to his people, to his people Israel, to all who would be part of spiritual Israel through the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, you are my witnesses, Isaiah 43.10. You are my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Do you hear that? In other words, so you can know who I am and so you can make me known in the world. You are my witnesses that I am God. Jesus himself calls you and I to be his witnesses. In Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And they say, now that you have died and rose again, now is the kingdom going to be restored to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the specific times and dates that the Father has hidden within his own set authority. But what you do need to know is God will empower you. The Father will give you the Holy Spirit so that you can be my witnesses. Not just here in Jerusalem, but in Judea, that area of Judah, Samaria to the north, and to all parts of the earth, so that every tribe and tongue will know that you are for me, and through you, they can be invited to me. You know what the word for witnesses is in this passage in the Greek? Martyrs. It's where we get our English word martyrs. You are my martyrea. You are my witnesses. You are the ones who will give testimony. Now, I have many verses that I'd like to take you to, and I don't have enough time to look at all of them adequately. So I'm going to ask you to take the time to note these verses and look at them yourself. Again, you can come to the website and you can download the slides, but really do this. Look at Matthew chapter 10 and recognize that when Jesus is talking to his followers in that moment, he is talking to you and me. He says, if you're going to follow me, there are going to be people that challenge you. Now, in the, book, in the chapter 22 of Joshua that we've just looked at, the challenge from the Cisjordanian tribes to the Transjordanian tribes reveals that there's real unity there. But it also reflects this truth, that if you are following the things that God has called you to do, it often produces strife and tension. And Jesus says, don't deny that and don't be surprised. If you're going to be my follower, you're going to get called before governors and kings to be a witness. They're going to arrest you. But when they do, don't worry about what you say or how you say it because the Holy Spirit will enable you to be my witness. Brothers and sisters, there is persecution throughout the history of the people of God. 
you and I should not be surprised to face persecution. And I want to say, that doesn't mean we go and seek it out. You know, the word martyr today often gets utilized in a different way, and it's a way that you and I want to avoid. We don't want to be someone who makes themselves out to be a martyr. And the way that's usually thought of is somebody who's suffering something very little, but making a big deal about it. Oh, I have to do all this, or oh, I suffer all of this, but I'll do it. I'll do it willingly, but really everyone around them is going, well, then do it quietly, right? Because what you're going through isn't any worse than what I'm going through. That's one kind of martyr that nobody likes and no one should want to be, and that's not what God has called us to be. Another is one who looks for fights and scuffs and scuffles to try and pick fights. But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the problem seekers. So you don't go looking for trouble. Jesus said, trouble will come enough to you. Don't go seeking it. And another kind of martyr is someone who is suffering for their own wrong, right? What if the Transjordanian tribes had been building another altar? What if they had been hiding something from God? What if they had been dedicating themselves to sexual immorality or to idolatry or to greed? Then, then whatever they suffered, it's their own fault for suffering it. So don't be a martyr if you're suffering for sin because there's no righteousness in that. But what we are called to be is not a martyr in the world's way of thinking about it, but a witness to the truth of Christ. And if you are following Jesus and doing what he has called you to do, you'll be loving towards your enemies. You'll be connected to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you may be reviled by your own natural brothers and sisters. You may have family members that turn against you. You may have society turn against you, but you won't turn against them. You'll simply keep turning to the Lord and showing them his love, but also refusing to deny his truth. Those two things are part and parcel of what it means to be a witness. You can see in Ephesians chapter 5, again, that we are told that we are living in evil days, and our call is to make the most of the time that we have, which means we must daily be seeking the filling of the Holy Spirit and daily be walking in the wisdom of the word and regularly being committed to one another, connected in submission and humility, the unity that we have together. Because we are living stones. We are living stone altars that witness to the word and the work of the Lord. And that's what makes us a temple fit for the housing of the Holy Spirit, a holy priesthood that offers a spiritual sacrifice. What is the sacrifice that we offer? Not the blood of, bu of uh, bulls and goats. The blood of Jesus Christ has already cleansed us from sin, and that's the good news that we carry to others. But in Romans chapter 12, what we are told is our sacrifice is how we live. We are called to offer our entire lives and bodies as a living sacrifice, as a living witness to the truth and the righteousness, the grace the justice, the mercy of the Lord, the call of God. So if we are to be living stones, we are the sacrifice on that altar. We live for the Lord. 1 Peter 2 says that Jesus is the precious cornerstone, the foundation that we build our life on. But not everybody holds that stone as precious. There are those who don't believe and reject that stone. But the testimony of the word is, those who reject the stone 
have rejected the cornerstone. And that stone not only will cause people to stumble, but it will fall like a rock upon those who would resist the Lord. But you are not destined for that. You are called to be a special possession of God, to declare his praises, because he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are called to this because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his footsteps. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. A living witness to Jesus is someone who follows the path of the Christ. And what Jesus said is, anyone who would follow me needs to pick up their cross and follow me. Finally, Revelation 22. The days are evil, Ephesians chapter 5 says. That was true 2,000 years ago in the time of Paul. It's true today. Make the most of your time. Hazel and I have a friend who sadly just lost a family member through a sudden heart attack. And uh, there was no, uh, no warning. Um, a relatively young man, uh, I think 52, in apparent good health. It's a tragic moment. May the Lord bless that family with encouragement and strength in the time of their grieving. But Jesus talked about how any one of us never knows what tomorrow holds. Remember when he talked about the people that were crushed by a tower that fell over them in Jerusalem. He talked about people that were suddenly martyred in the midst of their worship. Their wicked ruler Herod put them to death for some wrong that he perceived. But Jesus talks about them in a way that seems to recognize that these were people who loved the Lord and were worshiping him and they were put to death. And Jesus says, do you think these people who experience this kind of thing are the worst people? Do you think you're better than them? No. What he's saying to us is you don't know the time that you have. It's not for you to know the times that the Father knows. God knows how long you have on this earth. Only God knows, but God knows. And it's not for you to know it or me. But what it is for you and I to know is whatever time has been given to us has been given to us so that we would be a witness for the word of the Lord, for the truth of his life, for the grace of his gospel. And so we may face many hardships before our time here is done. But we shouldn't face them because we're living unrighteously. And we shouldn't be surprised if we face them if we are following the Lord. How will we overcome? They triumphed over the enemy, which is the devil, by the blood of the lamb, the blood on the altar, the blood on the cross, and by the word of their testimony. In other words, the witness of their life. We've talked about in these uh, series of recent teachings, there's past, present, and future applications. The altar that they built in Joshua 22 remembered the past. And the delegation that came to ask about it also looked to the past. They were both looking to who God is and what God had done. And in doing that, they found peace in the present moment. For all I've said about the difficulties of these days, don't give up hope that people can be at peace. And don't give up on being a peacemaker. But don't just try and keep the peace. Bring the peace of the Lord and find reconciliation by sharing the truth of God. And then no matter what resistance you may face, you know that your future is secure because it belongs to God. Israel had learned from their past failings that the actions of just one person affects everybody. 
But that also means that if one person's faithfulness has an effect, one person's faithfulness brings blessing. Love can cover a multitude of sins. We must remember that we belong to God. And we must remember that all people are made in his image and that we are sent by him to them with a message of reconciliation. The divisions of our day carry the threat of violence, war even. A civil war does not seem to me an, an un, unimaginable eventuality in these days. But I pray that, that would, it, we would not come to something like that. And yet there's strife in our cities and strife in the land. But we are called to be witnesses to God's mercy and grace. So let our lives be a living sacrifice to him that is a witness to the world around us that there is not only a God in Israel, but he is the God in our own heart. And that way we can live wisely. Don't waste time in these days, my friends. Don't give yourself over to the distractions of a defeated world. Don't give yourself over to the deceptions of a destructive devil. Live wisely and make the best use of the days that you have because these days are evil, but our God is good. And the time is coming and now is when all those who worship him in spirit and in truth will by that spirit be a living altar for the glory of God. And there is a reward for those who wait on him. Lord, I pray that you would use our lives for your purposes today, that you would redeem us from our past failings. In fact, we know that you already have. Remind us, Lord, of our redemption. For any father who are hearing these words or part of this prayer right now and they're not certain of their place in you, I pray that you would move upon them, Lord, by your spirit, in their spirit to revive them. That they would pray, Lord, forgive me of my sins. That they would pray, Lord Jesus Christ, you are my sacrifice, you are my savior. That they would trust themselves by placing themselves on the altar of your word, on the altar of your throne, on the cross of Christ, that at the cross of Christ, they would find not only redemption, but resurrection. And friend, if that's you, if you've never given your heart to the Lord before, just do it now. Just say, there is a God, you are him, and I'm calling out to you, save me, forgive me, help me. If you know the Lord, but you've been in turnaround, you've been walked away from him, you've been in a backslidden state, then now is the time to come back before it's too late. Because you don't know about tomorrow, but today, if you call on the name of the Lord, what you will see is your salvation is secure in him. He washes away all your sin. He may call you to account for things you've done. He may bring you into a confrontation with people you've wronged or even with issues that you've run away from. Don't be afraid to follow him into that place because the Lord will lead you in a pathway of life. There's no problem you have he can't solve. There's no disease or depression you suffer from that he can't deliver you out of. There's no bondage of the enemy he cannot break. There is no darkness he cannot light up with his light. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it because he is greater, because he is God. Friend, if you've been following the Lord faithfully but you're finding yourself wearied or worried or distracted or distressed, then let the love of the Lord remind you today of his witness to you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. 
All who trust in me will be saved. Hold on. Don't give up. Lean on me. If you're weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you hope. I'll give you the words to say. I'll show you the path to take. I'll give you the strength to not hold on to your life, but to give it up. I'll give you courage. Friend, receive this right now. I will give you courage, says the Lord, even to face death. And you won't be afraid. And you'll know it's because I'm with you. In fact, you'll have joy. When you suffer physically, when you're beaten, when you're separated from your family, when you see wrong being done, even in my name, but you know it doesn't reflect me, or against my name, you won't despair, you won't give up, you'll be encouraged because you'll know that I'm with you. You'll experience my sufferings in yours and you will experience my spirit empowering you and you will know that your heavenly reward and your eternal hope is secure and you will shine with the brightness of my life and my light. Hallelujah. Lord, we receive you. We receive your word. We believe. Give us the strength to live faithfully until your return or until you bring us home to you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for letting me go a bit longer today, my beloved friends. If you prayed that prayer of giving your heart to the Lord for the first time, contact us. Let us know. If you're here in L.A., we'd love to get you connected. If you're somewhere else, we might be able to help you find a local body of Christ where you can hear the teaching of the Word and receive the Spirit. We love you. We bless you. And we pray that you will be the witness of the Lord in your world today by His power and according to His grace. Amen.